Let's pray. Father, would you please give us the sense of the presence of your Spirit. We're thankful that he is the one who will teach us all truth, that he brings the anointing so that we know the truth. And uh, Lord, we're dependent upon him. So I ask now, Lord, that he would come and, and help us to understand the truth that we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a young reporter once who was interviewing a college football coach. And he asked the coach, um, so how has the game of football contributed to the health and fitness of Americans? And the uh, college coach said, well, it hasn't contributed at all. He said, well, what do you mean it hasn't contributed at all? He said, the game of football has 22 men out on the field who desperately need rest and 66,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> and when you think about it, when I think about it, I think, you know, our church many times can look like those 66,000 people up in the stands. Spectators. We're good at showing up and we're good at looking at what's happening down on the field and we're good at rooting for our favorite quarterback or preacher or booing, criticizing if we don't like the sermon. We're good at doing all that, but when's the last time we put on a jersey, put on a helmet, picked up a football and ran towards the end goal? See, I, I believe that the church is not a spectator sport. It's, it's something where every person is in the game. Every person is a member of the team. Every person's got a vital contribution to make. Nobody gets to sit up in the stands and just watch what's happening down on the field. Especially is that true in a church like ours where we emphasize mutual participation and interaction and every member having something from the Spirit to contribute towards the whole and to edify the whole. Someone once said, the church isn't a bus where the pastor does all the driving and all the members are in the back seat asleep. <laughs> and he's right. The church is more like the 49ers, and they've got, I don't know, 40 members, and you're one of those 40 members. You, you may be a punter, you may be a kickoff receiver, you might be a tight end, a defensive linebacker, but you're something. And you're, you have a part to play to, to move your team towards the win. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about, well, our minister has been here for so many years. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, they mean our pastor, but they call the pastor or the church leaders the minister. Or they say, how, how many years have you been in the ministry? And both of those ideas are totally contrary to scripture because it assumes that there's one guy who's the minister of a church. The Bible says here in verse 12 that the saints are the ones that do the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, if you're a saint, you are a minister. If you are a Christian, if you are a saint, God has called you into the work of the ministry. You know, we have this distinction, don't we? Clergy and laity. And the clergy, they're the guys that we pay to do the ministry. And the laity, they're the guys that get to sit back in the stands and watch the clergy bite it out or fight it out on the football field below, right? Well, that's totally contradictory to Scripture as well. In the Bible, you're never going to read about the clergy. It's not in the Bible. Neither is the laity. You see, we are all one people of God. 
There are some people that God has gifted to equip the rest of the people, but that doesn't mean that they do all the ministry while nobody else does any ministry, they just watch on. It means that all of us are called to the ministry, but some people have a slightly different role than others. Their role is to equip and to train and to teach others so that they can be effective in ministry. So this morning, what I want to speak to you about is every member ministry. If you are a Christian, this applies to you. You are in the ministry. And the reason I feel so passionately about every member ministry is because in, here in Ephesians 4, there are three different places where the Apostle Paul emphasizes that every Christian is in the ministry. Now look with me, would you, at verse 7? <clears throat> he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So who did Jesus Christ gift with grace, according to this verse? It says each one. Each one. That doesn't leave you out. <laughs> are you an each one? <laughs> you sure are. If you've been born of the Spirit, you qualify here. Christ has gifted you with grace. Now, we're not talking about saving grace here. It's not saying He gave you the grace to be saved. It's saying that He gave you the grace to serve within the body as the context is going to bear out as we continue to study it. So He has given every Christian grace, serving grace, to minister in the body so that certain goals are achieved in that local church. Look also at verse 11 and 12. It says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for a particular purpose. It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now tell me, who does the work of service according to that verse? The saints do. The, the uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, their job is to equip the saints. It's the saints' job to do the work of ministry. Do you see that in the text? So, God has called me to be an equipper. So my job is to equip all of you. And I, I want to be faithful at that. I want to really apply myself and be diligent Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, to do whatever I can to equip you. But your job is throughout the week, seven days a week, to be involved in ministry of one sort or another. Serving. Serving the Lord, serving His people, serving lost people. So again, we are told that the saints are the ones that are involved in the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, He's called you to the work of the ministry. And then thirdly, look at verse 16. The last word of verse 15 says Christ, and then it says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now here, we're told that something must happen to cause the growth of the body for the building up of the body in love. Do you see what that is in verse 16? Yes, it's the proper working of each individual part. So if we have some of the individual parts working, the body's not going to grow as well. 
If you have half of them working, it's still not going to grow as well. But if you have every single person in that church vitally contributing to the life and the health and the edification of the whole church, you're going to have a church that's growing and being built up in love, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, there's something else that we need to notice before we dig in, in particular, to some things in this, this section. And that is that Paul's talking not about individuals, he's talking about the corporate body. Let me show you that from our text. Verse 12 speaks about, speaks about the building up of the body of Christ. Now that's not you as an individual, that's the whole local church that he has in mind. Or look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Or verse 16, from whom the whole body, not you as an individual, he has in mind the whole local church here, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. Not you as an individual. Paul's thinking about the church. Now, not the universal church. He's talking about local churches. And he wants local churches to grow and to build themselves up in love. So we can't read this passage with individualistic glasses on, or we're going to miss his point. He's thinking about each local church, the character of each local church, and let's say we have a visitor that comes in. They ought to be able to tell fairly soon what, what this church is like, what they're all about. Because each church has a personality. It has a certain character. And this local church, with this personality and character, is to grow up into Christ-likeness, according to Paul. Now, we're going to look at three aspects of every member ministry and what that is designed to accomplish. Paul says here it's designed to accomplish the maturing of the body, the unifying of the body, and the discerning of the body. So let's look, first of all, at the maturing of the body. Verse 12. These apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers were given to the church by Jesus Christ to equip them. And I'll just insert a little word here. I, I do not believe we have apostles in the same sense that we had the twelve. We don't have apostles with a big A who have apostolic authority and who write scripture today, but we do have apostles with a small a. We usually call those missionaries. They are sent ones, church planters that God sends into the world to carve out new ministry. So we have those kinds of small a apostles today. Prophets, well, God occasionally will especially gift somebody to be able to speak forth his word. And so they're especially gifted in that sense. They're not gifted to prophesy scripture or anything on a par with the word of God, but they're gifted to speak forth words that are meaningful and appropriate and applicable for those people at that particular time. It's got nothing to do with doctrine, nothing to do with theology. It's got to do with God's guidance for particular people at a particular point. We also do have evangelists and we have pastors and teachers today. Okay? So these people were given, according to verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, and here it comes, to the building up of the body of Christ. Their job is to equip the saints. The saints' job is to minister to each other so that the body, that local church, is built up. Now over in 
Second Peter chapter 3, Peter ends his letter there by saying, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how the church is built up. We grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that comes as we study scripture together. So if the local church is to be built up, we're going to have to be a people that put God's word as a premium whenever we gather. We're serious about the word. That's the means that he uses to build up each local church. And what that means is that we need to make the gatherings of the church, when the scriptures are being taught and being studied, we have to make those gatherings priority. Which means that we don't let lesser things crowd those out. We don't let hobbies or interests or amusements or entertainment or things that have a lesser value crowd out the gatherings of the church where that church can be built up. So not only does he tell us that we are to be built up, but then in verse 13, he goes on to talk about maturing as a church. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And in the last part of verse 16, it says, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So all the way through this section, Paul's emphasizing the growth of the body. Do you see that? We're supposed to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're down here as little children. We're to grow up into adulthood, grow up into the stature of Christ. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. And each individual part working properly is to cause the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So like I said, he pictures the church, the local church is like a, a child. But that child is maybe seven or eight years old. He's about three feet high, weighs about 70 pounds. <laughs> He says he wants that child to grow up into the fullness of Christ. So Jesus is the mature man. Jesus is way up here, the perfect man. And he's wanting the church to grow up into Christ's likeness. Right up into Jesus where we attain the same stature. Now we're never going to perfectly attain the stature of Christ and be perfectly Christ-like. But that's the goal of every local church. Is that each individual and then corporately that church becomes holy becomes a mature church where we begin to put on Christ-like character so that when visitors come in they say these people really are a lot like Jesus the personality of that church is like Jesus they they're humble and meek but yet they're courageous and bold when it comes to proclaiming the word they're forgiving and gentle but yet determined that they're gonna glorify God they're, they're very much like Jesus. They're, they're growing up into Christ and into the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what that means is that we need to take holiness seriously as a church. Amen? If we're going to be like Christ, we have to. Which means that when we sin, we need to be committed that we will repent of that sin and not let that sin go on and on and on. 
that repentance will be something that we value as a church. Um, over in Romans 6, it says that each Christian has been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And because we have died with Christ, our old self was crucified with him. So the old you, that is the old you before conversion, has been crucified. He doesn't exist anymore. The new you is the one who has been raised from the dead spiritually with Jesus. Now we walk in this newness of life, this resurrection power, this resurrection life. The old man in Adam, that's the person we were born in, he's dead because you're no longer in Adam. God chopped you out of the Adam tree and he brought you over here and he grafted you into the Christ tree. So the man in Adam no longer exists. He's not there anymore. He's not in Adam. He's in Christ. You are a new person. And that's why Paul says, consider these things. Consider that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And don't let yourself go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but as those who are alive from the dead, present your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. So these are the kinds of things that we need to be reminding each other of. And we need to seek to cultivate to live that lifestyle where we recognize the old man's dead, the new man's alive, let me feed and cultivate this new man that God has made me in Jesus Christ. So as we do that, we're going to start maturing as a church, not just individuals, but as a church, a local expression of the body of Christ. Um, Oleg and I have been reading this, uh, it's sort of a, a go through the Bible in a year kind of a thing. And in our reading this last week, we were reading about the Passover. And something struck me. It comes from Exodus chapter 13, and verse 1 and 2. You remember the story of the Passover, where certain God spared certain people from death? Do you remember which ones He spared? Oh. What did they have to do? They had to stay in the house, but they had to put something on their door, remember? You got it, Louie. Come on now. <laughs> they had to put the blood, a lamb or a goat. Had to be one year old. Had to be without blemish. They had to kill it at twilight. They had to drip the blood into a basin and take a branch of hyssop, which was a, a, a bush, dip it in that, that bloody basin and almost like paint the door, paint the doorposts. And then all the members of the household go inside that house and they eat that lamb or that goat that's been roasted. They eat the whole thing. And when the angel of death comes over, he sees the blood over the door, and he doesn't do anything to that house. He passes over. Judgment doesn't come to that house. Now, that's what we have going on in chapter 12. We come to chapter 13. This is what God says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. See, God had passed over the firstborn of Israel. God had spared them. They were alive only because of the mercy of God, right? So there is an obligation now to God. God saved their lives. God says, now you owe me. I want you to sanctify or to consecrate to me all of those people that didn't die but should have. Why? He says, because they belong to me. I redeemed them. The blood of that goat 
was the price that redeemed that person from death and judgment. That person now belongs to me, so take them and sanctify them. Dedicate them. And the way they did that was uh, they had to pay a price to the temple, and th that person then would be redeemed and he's set free. But this has New Testament application for us. Can you think of a verse in the New Testament that sounds kind of like this? It came to my mind as I was reading through Exodus 13. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Here we go. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He says, you're not your own. The firstborn that was delivered from judgment was not their own. God had a claim on them because God saved them. And if you're a Christian, God has a claim on you because he has saved you. And so he's saying, sanctify yourself to me. Dedicate yourself to me to be holy gods. Not to allow yourself to go on living in sin anymore. See, the, the truth of Romans 6 is that we can break the power of sin. We can overcome those sins that plague us if we will apply the gospel to our lives diligently, day after day after day. We can see, um, we can see a lessening of the power of sin and a strengthening of the power of Christ in our life. But this is what we have to do. Realize that we're not our own. We've been bought with the price, the blood of Christ, and then glorify God in our bodies. The things that we do with our hands, hear with our ears, see with our eyes, speak with our mouths, eat and drink with these mouths and tongues and teeth, <laughs> go with our feet, whatever this body does, we're to seek to glorify God. And Paul says in, in some place, I think it's chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, towards the end, maybe, I might be off on that. But he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so that's pretty all-inclusive. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that is the command of our high king who says, sanctify to me the firstborn. You're the firstborn if you're a Christian. Sanctify yourself to the Lord. And as we do that, as a church, we grow to maturity. We grow up into Christ who is the head, the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. So, why every member ministry? The maturing of the body. Secondly, the unifying of the body. Let's go back to Ephesians. Let's look at verse 13. The reason why all the saints are involved in the work of ministry, verse 13, is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, here he speaks about the unity of the faith. But if you were to go back to verse 3, you're going to see he talks about the unity of the Spirit. And there is a difference between the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the faith. You'll notice this in verse 3, that we're supposed to preserve the unity of the Spirit, but we're supposed to attain the unity of the faith. You see, we already have the unity of the Spirit. Every born-again Christian already has the unity of the Spirit with every other born-again Christian.
Because every Christian has been baptized into the body of Christ. There is a supernatural spiritual unity that you share with every other born-again person on the planet. Paul says, okay, in the local church, just preserve it. You don't have to attain to it. You don't have to create it. It's already been created for you. You have been baptized into this unity. What I want you to do is to walk in humility and gentleness and patience so that you preserve the unity that's already there. But the unity we're talking about in verse 13 is different. It's something that we're supposed to attain to. And it's not the unity of the Spirit. It's the unity of faith and the unity of knowledge. Faith and knowledge. Now, what that means is that we are to seek to strive after unity of doctrinal truth together as a local church. That's what he means by the faith. It's the body of doctrinal truth passed on by Christ and the apostles to the body of Christ. We are to seek to attain to unity within doctrine. You say, Brian, that'll never work. We have been so infected with postmodern cultural influences. And if you don't know what postmodernism is, that's simply the idea that there is no objective truth. That's what everybody is saying, everybody's thinking. Whenever you start talking to people about spiritual subjects, they say, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. That's the mantra today. <laughs> Everything's subjective. There's no objective truth. And so because we live in a culture like that, the moment you start talking about the fact, hey, we need to seek to strive towards doctrinal unity, people get anx anxious and kind of they kind of flip out at that thing. It's impossible. We'll never be able to do that. We'll never be able to have doctrinal unity because what's true for you may not be true for me. Folks, that whole mantra is a lie. There is such a thing as objective truth. Paul's talking about it in this section. Later he's going to say, speak the truth in love. He's talking about objective, real, abiding, solid truth that the Christian church needs to hold fast together as one. Now, when I look at the Christian landscape, I realize it sounds like a pipe dream to think that we are going to have doctrinal unity. Because how many denominations are there? Hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of denominations. And each one of them has a slightly little twist on something that they hold to be important to their group. It might be, we, we baptize by sprinkling. We baptize infants. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You should baptize believers by immersion. And so you've got disagreements. The spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 have ceased. They're gone with the apostles. No, they haven't. They're still here today. And so you've got doctrinal disagreements. You've got people who believe in congregational church government. And then there's others who believe in elder-ruled church government. You have people who talk about, uh, yes, there's going to be a rapture and then a seven-year tribulation and then Christ is going to come back and then there's going to be a kingdom on the earth. And then you've got people like me who say, no, I don't believe that stuff. I believe Christ is coming. The rapture is going to happen at the same time. There is no, not going to be any millennium on the earth. Uh, there's going to be heaven and hell. And so you've got post-millennial people. You've got amillennial people. You've got premillennial people. And you've got dispensational premillennial people. You've got all kinds of different views on that. 
And we think, how in the world is any church ever going to have doctrinal unity? Right? D don't you feel the tension of that? Because there's so many different ways we look at the, the scriptures. But still, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. So that's something that we, we believe in. The knowledge of the Son of God. So as a local church, how do we do this? How do we work towards doctrinal unity? The answer I would give is that we start off with what people call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a word for what is the proper way to interpret Scripture. Let's talk about that as a church. I think if we just started with a few basic principles of hermeneutics that we all agreed were valid, we can make a huge headway in terms of doctrinal unity. For example, if we would just agree that we should read the Bible in context, that we shouldn't pull verses out of context and just make them mean what we want, but that we read what comes before it and what comes after it and try to fit that verse into the contextual flow. That's going to help us. If we agree that we need to seek the authorial intent, in other words, what did that author mean to those original recipients when he wrote it? Not what do I read into it as what he's speaking to me today, but let's start with what did... The Apostle Paul mean when he wrote to the Ephesians and he was telling them these things. What was his meaning? Once we have his meaning, then we can apply it to our contemporary situation, but not before. That's another principle of hermeneutics. Another principle, let Scripture interpret Scripture. So if we're unsure of what one passage means, let's look at other passages that will throw light on this particular passage. Another principle of and hermeneutics is... <clears throat> Interpret the obscure in light of the clear. So if you come to a passage which seems a bit obscure and the church has always had a, a difficult time coming to an interpretation of that passage where they were in unity, well, let's go to other passages that are clear and once we have the meaning of those clear passages, let those passages throw light on the obscure passages. So what you're doing is saying, how do I interpret the Bible? That's what we're asking. And if we can agree on just a few of those, four or five of those principles, we're going to go a long way towards working towards doctrinal unity as a local church. Now, once we've done that, what we need to do is start reading Scripture together and discussing it. And do it a lot. That's why the men's study on Tuesday mornings, we're just going to go through Scripture. And as we do that, we will grow into more doctrinal unity. If we have a humble heart, if we love each other, if we respect each other, and if we're patient with each other. And if we just take time to work through Scripture again and again and again. And as we work through Scripture, we should do things like challenge each other. If we find out that we look at this differently, we should say, okay, I, I hear you. Tell me why you believe that. What's your foundation for what you believe? Let's see if that foundation is solid or not. And then let me share you with you what I think it means and what my foundation is and then we'll take a look at those two various ways to look at that text and let's make a decision of what seems to be the best seeing it in its context and its authorial intent letting scripture interpret scripture you see what I mean so we're not just rolling over and playing dead we're just oh whatever the loudest person says it means has to be what it means no we, we debate with each other we challenge each other we argue with each other, but we do that 
lovingly, graciously, gently, and respectfully. If we don't hold those things in tension, forget it. We're never going to make any progress. But a few weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we talked about how much we need to love each other as a church. Remember that one? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I loved you. Well, if we truly love each other, then we're going to be patient when we see things in different ways, right? Because I love you, I know that you're in transition, and so am I. If you've been a Christian a while, you can look back to earlier days in your Christian life, and you can say, you know, I used to believe this, I don't believe that anymore. The thing I thought, the thing I believed was true, I now believe is untrue. Can, you, can anybody say, look back on anything in your life like that? I've got a whole bunch of them. But I've got, been doing this for 35 years, and so I've had to rethink and restudy lots of stuff as I've gained more information and more light along the way. And so we need to realize that every one of us is at a different place in our spiritual life. We're all growing. We all need the benefit of others to throw light on how we think. And so as we allow people to speak into our lives, we can rethink things that we have held a particular slant on. And the body helps the body to grow towards doctrinal unity as we discuss, challenge, debate, look at the, the, the bottom foundations for why we believe what we believe. Do you see that? So we're working towards the unifying of the body of Christ. Now he also says in verse 13, not only is it the unity of the faith, it's also the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we need to work towards our understanding of Jesus Christ as a church and unity towards what we believe about Christ. Who is he? Is he God or man? Or is he both? Or is he an archangel? You know, who is Jesus? Is he the spirit brother of Lucifer? We've got all these ideas floating around about who Jesus is. Um, what are his offices? Well, we believe he's prophet, priest, and king. He's also an apostle according to the book of Hebrews. He fills many offices, so let's understand those offices together. What about his character and his attributes? What is Jesus like? We need to understand his incarnation. God became flesh. We need to understand his life, his sinless life, and his substitutionary death, the atonement. We need to understand what happened there at the cross. Something all important took place when Jesus was dying. What was it? Did he just die as an example? We have the example theory of the atonement. We've got all kinds of theories of the atonement. The governmental theory. Or was it a penal substitution where Jesus died in the place of sinners bearing their penalty? We need to understand his resurrection. Did he die as, and then rise again as a spirit? Or did he rise bodily from the grave? We need to understand the fact that he ascended and that he's interceding for the church at the right hand of God. We need to understand the fact that he's coming back. We may never perfectly agree with all the details concerning that, but it doesn't matter. <coughs> That's one of the secondary issues that isn't all that important really in the big scheme of things, at least in my opinion. But we need to understand he is coming back. And then we need to understand that he's going to exercise judgment upon this world. So we need to understand, the, have this unity of faith 
and the unity of the knowledge of Jesus. And so we, we help each other in that week by week by week as we talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So every member ministry works towards the maturing of the body. Secondly, the unifying of the body. And then thirdly, the discerning, the discerning of the body. Look at verse 14. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That word trickery, the Greek word is kubeia. We get our English word cube from it. And it has to do with uh, using dice in a, trickery, in a tricking kind of way to win somebody's money from them. So it's dice playing. So when he talks about trickery, he's talking about something that is very snide, um, undercover, where you're, you're doing something deceptive in order to gain something from somebody. And then he uses the word craftiness. Over in 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says that Satan deceived Eve through craftiness. Satan's very crafty. I think in verse 14, just by the, the words that Paul uses, we can discern that Satan is involved in these philosophies, these worldly philosophies that we get stumped by, that false teachers use to enslave the people in the body of Christ. So trickery, craftiness, and then look at that word scheming. What's a scheme? It's a plan. Do you know Satan has a plan to capture unstable souls? Satan has a scheme. He's got a plan to do as much mischief as he can. We need to be aware of that. All through the New Testament, we see this principle that, that Paul will write, to le write letters, or uh, Peter, or James, or John, they'll write letters to warn the churches of the impact and influence of false teachers. For example, Jesus did it in Matthew 7. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are ravenous wolves. Watch out. You'll know them by their fruits. Test their fruit. Right? Um, over in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, There is such a thing as false apostles who will appear to you as angels of light disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, but they're false apostles. Over in Galatians 1, he says, some people are going to come to you with a false gospel. They're going to pervert the gospel. And he says, if they do that, let them be cursed. They're false teachers. Be ready, be warned about their influence in your life. Over in Colossians 2.8, he talks about these empty... Um, philosophies of men that will hold you captive. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So I'm going to leave, after I've left, these wolves. 
savage wolves. They're going to come in and eat up the sheep. And then he says, and from among your own selves. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to elders. Among your own selves, men are going to arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. They want a following. They want people to follow them, and so they're going to speak perverse things. Watch out, he's saying. So they're... Scripture after scripture after scripture of the apostles warning us, watch out for false teachers. That's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 4. That's why we need to work towards unity of faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that we're not tricked by, deceived by the false teaching that will come. Notice what he says in verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be like children. Children are gullible, aren't they? You can do one of these and say, look, got your nose, and they'll believe you. Wait a minute, they'll touch the... Wait, no, it's still there, you know? But they're gullible. You can tell them, hey, there's a big fat man that lives on the North Pole that comes down your chimney every year to give you presents. And they'll believe you, because they're gullible, right? Paul says, don't be like those little children that are gullible. I want you to become discerning about... All these ideas that are being promoted out there about Christianity and about Christ and how are you supposed to live this Christian life? If we're gullible, we're like a ship that doesn't have a rudder, doesn't have sails, and it's being beaten by these winds and it just goes anywhere and we can't control it. The Word of God is like an anchor that we throw off that ship to roots us in one place so that we can't be driven all over the place. We can stay in one place. So, as a church, we have to be rooted in God's Word. We have to take the Scriptures very seriously, or else we're going to become prey to the cults and to false teachers. We need to grow in discernment. So, he talks here about every wind of doctrine, doesn't he? I was just thinking over the last 50 years, I haven't been a Christian that long. I've been a Christian 30, since 79, whatever that is, 35 or... 36, 36 years. So over 36 years, I've seen the wind of doctrine of um, the prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, positive confession, barking like dogs, you know, laughing in the spirit. I've heard all of that. That's, that wind is blown through the church. Then there's the wind of um, Jesus coming back in 1981. Then it's 1984. Then 1994. And then someone pronounces it's going to be in 2000. Was it 2011 or 12 was the latest one. Always setting dates for the second coming of Christ. Then there's the doctrine that Jesus died twice. There's the doctrine of annihilationism, which isn't a new one. That's been around a long time. I mean, there's all kinds of false doctrines that are like winds just blowing through the church. And if, if we don't know the Bible well, we'll latch on to these things. And we'll say, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. That seems pretty sensational. I like sensational things. Yeah, let's go with that one. But we have to have our anchor down. So when that wind blows against your boat, your boat doesn't go anywhere because you know the truth. You're so exposed to the truth that whenever one of these ideas comes up, there's something in your mind that goes, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to jive with Ephesians chapter 4 or 1 John chapter 2 or Acts chapter 20 or whatever it is. See, what, what I want to encourage you guys to do is to study the Scripture so seriously that you have a stock of Scripture in your mind, 
and you've got this Bible filter on your brain, so when these ideas come to you from TV or radio or talking to somebody here or there or a book that you've read, all of that's going through the Bible filter. And when you get something that doesn't seem to connect with your Bible filter, out it goes. You don't let it come in. Now that takes time, and some of you are new Christians. So don't get discouraged. Just apply yourself. Make a commitment that every day, in one way or another, you're going to be in God's Word. Okay? Can you make a commitment like that? I'm going to be in God's Word every day, because that's the only way I'm going to be able to do what Paul's telling me to do here. So that I'm not off course by all these winds of doctrine. And, and I'm not talking about reading one page of a devotional every day. I'm talking about learning to study the Bible. Learning to study it. Reading it over and over. Asking yourselves questions of the text. Trying to see the context and the flow of the author's thought. That takes hard work. and that, That's why we don't like to do it. Right? It, it, it takes mental effort and energy. But that's the kind of thing that's going to pay off for you in the long run to make you a strong, mature believer in Jesus Christ. Now, let's draw down to our conclusion. God wants every believer involved in ministry for three purposes. The maturing of the body, the unifying of the body, the discerning of the body. But here's the question. How are we supposed to be engaged in this kind of ministry? What do we do? How do we do this? What's this every member ministry Paul has in mind that causes these goals to be met? Look at verse 15. And he gives it to us right here. But speaking the truth in love. There's the answer. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. Who's he talking about who's supposed to be speaking the truth in love? each member of the church. He's not addressing the pastors and telling the pastors to speak the truth in love. He's addressing the entire church and saying, all of you guys, you're all in the ministry. I want you all speaking the truth in love to each other. Now, what does he mean by speaking the truth in love? I think I've had a false assumption in the past. This is my false assumption. To speak the truth in love meant that I'm going to have to say something kind of hard to somebody else, but because it's going to be hard for them to receive, I'm going to temper it with love. I'll be gentle. So maybe it's something like, you know, brother, if you keep waking up at 11 o'clock every day and go to work at 1 o'clock, you're never going to get ahead in life. But I love you, brother. You know, speaking the truth in love. That, that's not what Paul means here. If we look at the context, what does he mean by truth in this section? The Word of God. He's talking about doctrinal truth. We know that from verse 11. He has these leaders like apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers who equip. And how do they equip? With the Word of God. We also know from uh, verse 13, he talks about until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's doctrinal content he's talking about. And then we know from verse 14, he speaks about winds of doctrine. So when he speaks about speaking the truth in love in verse 15, we can't divorce that from the whole flow of what Paul has been speaking about. He's speaking about doctrinal truth, which is rooted in God's word. So what that means is that every member of the church needs to learn to speak 
the truth of Scripture to each other and to do it in love. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Yes, we need to be speaking the truth to each other, and when there's disagreement, we need to love each other. But that doesn't mean we stop speaking truth. Maybe we have a false idea of what the truth is. We need to be humble enough and teachable enough to at least honestly consider that other person's perspective. Wouldn't you agree? None of us here, I don't think, is there anybody here who has all the truth and they can't grow in any aspect of biblical truth? How many hands would say, yeah, that's me. <laughs> it's not me. I know I'm growing all the time. So if we're humble enough to admit we don't have all the truth, then, then we're going to allow someone to speak into our life, and at least we're going to consider prayerfully that thing. Now, we might disagree after we've considered it, but at least we're going to consider it. And we're going to love each other as we're all in the process of growing, and we're all in the process of maturing in doctrinal understanding. Someone put it this way. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, what? Liberty. In all things, charity. There are certain things that are of first importance. Those are the things that relate to who Christ is, who God is, what is the gospel. We have to agree on the gospel to go anywhere as a church. Okay? So those are of first importance. Essential issues. So we work towards unity. And then... If, if we, as a church, can embrace those essential matters, then we seek to, can we get even closer in doctrine and unity by pursuing secondary issues together? So, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. And so, I want to exhort all of you today to be committed to every member ministry. How do we engage in that? Well, we engage in that whenever we're together. Sunday morning? In just a few minutes, we're going to have an open session, and you're going to be in the game. Put on your, your jersey and your helmet and pick up a football, because you're in the game. It's your time to speak the truth to one another in love. That's what that open session's for. Um, during the Lord's Supper, when we're sitting around a table eating together, let's use that as an opportunity to speak the truth in love. At our men's study, ladies' Bible study, equipping night on Wednesday, all of the times we're together, those are opportunities to do what Paul is telling us to do here, to speak the truth in love. And so I want to urge you to be start to think about going to church, not just to passively sit in the stands and listen to Pastor Brian talk to you. That might be part of what we do, but that only a part. The other part is you contributing something to that meeting. And so, and to do that, you're going to have to be in the Word during the week. How else are you going to have something from the Spirit to bring? So, this is going to require discipline on the part of the people of the church to be in the Word, to be walking with Jesus, so that they have something from the Lord to bring to edify that body and to cause the body to grow. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'd work these wonderful truths into our life, cause them to to work their way out so that we do see the body growing in maturity, Lord, growing in unity and growing in discernment. In Jesus' precious name, amen.